0: This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Psalms chapter 22. Psalms chapter 22, verses 1 through 22. This morning I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you remain so distant? Why do you ignore my cries for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy. The praises of Israel surround your throne. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. You heard their cries for help and saved them. They put their trust in you and were never disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you when I was a nursing infant. I was trusted upon you you at my birth. You have been my God from the, the moment I was born. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in, like roaring lions attacking their prey. They come at me with open mouths. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count every bone in my body. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divided my clothes among themselves and throw dice for my garments. O Lord, do not stay away. You are my strength. Come quickly to me, to my aid. Rescue me from a violent death. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the, from the horns of these wild oxen. Then I will declare the wonder of your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among all your people.
1: Thank you, Gary. I wanted Gary to read more of Psalm 22 than we usually read because this psalm, Psalm 22, stands at the center of Christianity. Kind of strange, right, just to grab a random psalm out of uh, the Psalter and say that it stands at the middle of Christianity. But the reason it does is because Psalm 22 stands at both the center of Christian doctrine We're going to see the gospel emerge here in just a moment. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection for us. This Psalm 22 is a prophecy at the center of Christian doctrine. And in the same moment, it's at the center of a Christian's experience. You see, Psalm 22 is what Christianity is really all about. And if you have read the gospel story... Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and you've made it to the end where Jesus is being tortured, tried and crucified. You probably recognize some of the language that Gary read, like they cast lots for my clothing or my hands and my feet were pierced, things like that. And most famously, you've probably recognized the very first line where Jesus cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That question, why, is a really important question. Sometimes I wear out of it as a parent. You know, I've got three little kids at home, and I hear why a lot. Um, sometimes I don't always have answers, so the, because your dad said so has uh, become more and more uh, effective lately. But the question why, Jesus is asking here, or the psalmist David, and then Jesus quotes, Why, God, have you forsaken me? Is vital. And what makes this psalm sort of stand at the center of Christianity is both the fact that it prophesies Jesus' death and resurrection, as we'll see, but it also really begins to touch on what it's like to walk with God throughout your life, especially in suffering. And in suffering, cry for the presence of God. So most hopeful for us this morning will be just to walk through this and borrow the question from verse one. Why? And we're going to ask three really simple questions of this text. The first question is, why did David write this? Because David is the author of Psalm 22, some 1000 years before Jesus ever lived. He had to write this and there was a reason he wrote it. So We're going to ask the question one. Why did Jesus write this? Question two, why did or why did David write this? Pardon me. Question two, why did Jesus quote it? And question three is, why does it matter for you? Let's start with number one. Why did David write this psalm? And the very quick answer is we don't actually know. And this is an important answer. You see, most of the psalms we can connect with an event that happened someplace in the Old Testament, like a repentance psalm from David after the sin of Bathsheba and the death of his son. In Psalm 51, he laments and he repents and there's other places in in the psalms where we see a psalm being written and then attached to a historical event that we kind of get an idea of what was going on and why they wrote the psalm we don't really know why david wrote this psalm. was it his was he dealing with illness and suffering was he dealing with war was he dealing with unrest of the citizens citizens of the nation of israel See, the thing is, we're not really sure what David was going through when he wrote this psalm. But you do know his problem. You do see exactly what's wrong with David. In Psalm 22, 1 through 3, look at it. What do you think David's main problem is? What's what's he fighting with? What's he struggling with? What's David wrestling with? What is David so upset about in verses 1 through 3? Is it, oh Lord, deliver me from this illness. God, I've got enemies surrounding me. Get rid of the enemies. God, the, the nation of your people are a trouble to me. Would you get rid of them or give me new people? What's David's problem? My God, my God, why what? Have you forsaken me? You see, David's main problem was the perceived absence of God. His questions and his statements in verses 1 through 3 reveal his heartache. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry day by day, but you don't answer me. In the nighttime, I have no rest. You see, what David is revealing is that it's not the circumstances so much that's bothering him. It's the distance that he's experiencing from God. Here's why this becomes incredibly important for us as Christians. Do you know what it's like to experience such immense difficulty and suffering that drives you not just to ask for the circumstances to be better, but to scream to the universe for God to be closer? That's what David's dealing with here. And my best guess is most of you in here have probably felt some measure of suffering, some measure of torment some measure of pain where you've looked to the heavens and said this is not just the problem of the circumstance but god where are you right now where are you my heart is hurting my body is hurting my mind is tormented i'm dealing with unfair circumstances i don't like this but what i don't like is that i feel like you're a million miles from me where are you and david does exactly humans do when we begin to experience this where are you God phenomenon you see what David is feeling and what he's experiencing and what he begins to do is what most of us begin to do we begin to wrestle in our minds and look what David does in verses 3 through about 11 he begins to wrestle in his mind and look at the first place he starts with you see what David is dealing with is a disconnect between what he believes about God and what he's experiencing with God their separation in verses 3 through 5 look what he says after he says God where are you I cry to you day by day you're not answering me God I'm screaming out to you and, I, and you are not answering me verse 3 says yet I remember that you're holy enthroned on the praises of Israel in you Our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. You see what David is dealing with is what I know about God is that when his children cry to him, he answers. But what I'm experiencing is I'm crying and he's not answering. If you live long enough as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will experience a disconnect between your theology and your experience. What you know about God and what you're experiencing. And so David is confused. He's frustrated. He says, I know these things. Our fathers for centuries have cried out to you and you've answered. And yet when I'm crying, you're not answering. So then he does what most people do. Go to step two in verse six or verses uh, six through eight. He then turns to himself and what he believes about himself. If God does answer the cry of his people and he's not answering my cry, what does that mean about me? Verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me and they wag their heads. They say he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see, what David is actually writing here is not a quote from other people. Do you notice what he's writing? He's not writing, I was standing outside on my balcony, and this is what the people said to me, God. That's not what he's saying. What David is writing is what he says in his mind, what other people say about him. This is his internal experience. God, I'm despised by people, rejected by people, scorned by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. You see, what he's beginning to experience is, if God's not answering me, that must mean there's something wrong with me. I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm despised and I'm mocked. I don't deserve the presence of God. Look at me. Why would God even want to come deliver me? And this is usually the progression we go through. We start with a distance from God, and we're wondering where He is. We need Him to show up. We remember that our thoughts about God, our beliefs about God, that He does respond to His people. And if He's not responding to me, then maybe it's me. And then David finishes with what he believes about his life. He says in verse 9, But wait a minute. Yet... You are the one who took me from the womb, God. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. God, you have been there before. So I know there are times where I don't feel like I probably deserve your presence, where I deserve your answer. But you have been there before. And David is giving us words that really describe the language of what a lot of young people who grow up in church feel like. You notice he says, God, you're the one who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. I was cast on you from my birth, meaning I was raised up in this. From my very youth, I was given this framework that says, trust in God. He hears the cry of his people and he answers. And David's a little frustrated. Let me tell you, people that grow up in church, there are moments where you will feel frustrated. Where you say, would I believe this if I wasn't born in this? Would this really make sense to me if it wasn't thrust upon me from the time that I was a child? Is this real, or was it just given to me before I could choose? That's what David's wrestling with here. You see, from birth, he's saying, I've been told about you. But I learned to trust you early in my life. And David is remembering that even though he was from his his mother's womb taught to trust God, that God has been there. And so he finishes with one really simple plea. In verse 11, God, please do not be far from me. Put in the positive, God, would you please come close? Come near to me, God, I need you. So why did David write this psalm? He was crying and lamenting over the missing fellowship that he wanted from God. And his beliefs about God told him that he was supposed to have it. And so his plea in the circumstances of trials and the difficulty of the suffering was, God, please come near to me. So why did Jesus quote this then? If this is just a psalm that kind of tells us how David was crying and lamenting, why would Jesus quote this psalm? It's kind of strange, isn't it? There's two really simple reasons I want to tell you why I believe Jesus quoted the psalm. The first one is this. Jesus was a master teacher. His entire life was spent teaching. In fact, he did miracles in his life just to garner an audience so that he could then teach them about the kingdom of God. That's really what he wanted to do in his life. He was built to be a teacher. He was designed by God to teach. And so he did miracles. He worked wonders so that people would come and he would have their ear. And he was a teacher. Now, Psalm 22, before Jesus arrives on the scene, is a familiar psalm to the Jews. They know about it. They've read it before. They read it in their worship every Saturday. They've heard this psalm plenty of times. They've probably quoted it. They probably have it memorized. But Psalm 22, before Jesus shows up, is not known as a messianic psalm. You know what a messianic psalm is? The messianic psalms are the collection of the psalms that the Jews knew. We're promising a coming savior. But Psalm 22 wasn't really in that category until Jesus arrived. Psalm 22 was in the category of the lament psalms. The psalms where David and other writers would cry out to God for their hurt and their pain and ask him to fix it. And so the Jews categorized Psalm 22 as a lament psalm. That's all it was. A crying of David's heart. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross we get this really unique picture. All of the Gospel writers, do you remember the language that they quoted Jesus in? You see, all the original writers wrote their Gospels in the common street language of Greek, Koine Greek, which is a side note to us on how we should present the Gospel in the common language to people. They didn't write in fancy classical Greek, they wrote in uh, common language Greek. But they come to this point in Jesus' crucifixion, and the writers don't write in Greek they write in Aramaic. You see, this was the common language that was spoken in the day. So Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic. He probably spoke Hebrew and Greek uh, in his religious setting. He probably could write Greek. That was a pretty common language. But Jesus spoke daily Aramaic. And at the cross, as he's hanging there, the gospel writers record Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you me and why did they write it in Aramaic because it was frozen into their mind seared upon their conscience it was a vivid memory of a historical event that Jesus Christ in his native tongue quoted Psalm 22 now why would Jesus do this because he knows not only is his present suffering is he crying out God why have you forsaken me we'll get to that in a moment He knows the disciples that are standing near John and his mother that are listening. When they hear him cry out this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those that are around, the Romans, who don't know the scriptures are like, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Eli, Eli sounds like Elijah. But the Jews who are nearby know he's quoting Psalm 22. And days, weeks, maybe months later, they go back and they look at Psalm 22 Ah, remember, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. Jesus said this, and they start reading it again. And they start making all the connections. There are nine specific events recorded in Psalm 22 that align with the crucifixion of Jesus. He was scorned, despised, and mocked. Jesus was. They said in Psalm 22, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's exactly what they said when they walked by Jesus and wagging their head. He was poured out like water, meaning he lost his substance and strength. His bones were not broken, but out of joint. He says his heart was like wax. It melted within him. His strength dried up and his mouth was parched. He was thirsty. And then he says in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet were pierced. This is hundreds of years before the concept of crucifixion was ever invented. When in David's life were his hands ever pierced and his feet ever pierced? This didn't happen to David. David is a prophet in this moment writing this. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the disciples remember that they come back to Psalm 22 and they're reading. They say, hey, Jesus said this. They start going through it and they realize This is a prophecy about Jesus. And this should blow your mind. David wrote this psalm almost 1,000 years before Jesus Christ. Let me give you a perspective. This is like the Vikings. Not the Minnesota Vikings. the, 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 The real Vikings. Writing in a document about the iPhone. That's the distance of time. Like just imagine how much changes. This is like somebody... In about 963 A.D. in Constantinople in the western part of the world or, or in the eastern part of the world where the Roman Empire was now being ruled. Writing in a document specific details about the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy. That's the same distance of time. And us getting that paper and being like, wait a minute, America wasn't even here yet, discovered in the way that it is now. Wait, wait a minute. How would they know this? Jesus was a master teacher. But he wasn't just a master teacher. He was also a sacrificial savior. You see, Jesus was not just quoting David. In fact, David was quoting Jesus in Psalm 22. This psalm doesn't describe illness. It doesn't describe body just being affected by a disease. This psalm describes execution, someone being executed. This psalm is more than a tragic death when the way that it's described it's an execution described as a judgment you see when jesus was crucified he was on the cross for about six hours on that friday 9 a.m to about 3 p.m from 9 a.m to about noon he was going through a lot of uh incredible difficulties there were a lot of words coming from his mouth he was making statements and then about 12 o'clock in the afternoon all of a sudden the world in which jesus lived went dark the lights went out darkness came over all of the earth. It was completely dark. And darkness, as you remember, is a symbol from God as God's judgment. I want to read for you Amos chapter uh, chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can read this. This is a really unique um, statement from the prophet. Listen to verse 9 and 10 in Amos chapter 8. He says this, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, repentance, and baldness on every head. It's a sign of repentance. Now listen to this last line. When After God says in Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, that at noon I will bring darkness over the earth. I will make it like morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Wow. You see, for three hours, one Friday, about 2,000 years ago, the judgment of God covered the earth. Darkness came. And the wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the only person on earth who could ask that question without a justifiable answer. You see, he was sinless, meaning that he should have never experienced the loss of connection to his father. And for three hours that Friday, the earth went dark, the connection was lost, and the son cries out, and that leads us to this last point, why this matters for you. At the end of Psalm 22, here's why this matters. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, in this psalm of suffering. First of all, it's the substance of your victory. you got to get this. Jesus crying out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness over, coming over the earth is the substance of our victory. You see, we deserve to stand in the place where Jesus stood. We deserve to be judged, punished mocked, ridiculed, and separated. Our self-exalting sin deserved to stand where Jesus stood, and yet he stood there for us. But our victory is more than an escape from the punishment that we were deserved. You see, Jesus going to the cross and dying was only part of the victory. Listen to verse 21 of Psalm 22. Something really strange happens in this psalm. All all of this psalm is written in this way that's future tense. God, will you please deliver me? God, please be here. God, please be with me. God, I need you. I'm crying out, save me. And in the middle of this stanza, in verse 21, he says this, save me from the mouth of the lion. Future tense, God. Please save me. But then verse 21, the second half is in the past tense. And he says, you You see, the change in tone goes from a cry of abandonment to a declaration of victory. And what David is prophesying very subtly in verse 21 is this, that Jesus would not just die for our sins, but he would raise for our glory. That he would not just die a sinner's death, sacrificially take the bullet for us, and go into the grave and we live with this romantic story of a savior who died for us. Isn't that great? No, we don't have just a romantic story. We have a powerful conquering story. Where he went into the grave dying for us. But raising so that the grave would have no power over us. And we would have confidence that we would raise again. This is the gospel victory for us. And so it's the substance of our victory, this psalm. It's also the source of our praise. He says in verse 22 of this psalm that I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all of you offspring. Look in verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Based upon what he has done, we return back to him gratitude and praise and so this matters because it's the substance of our victory it's the source of our praise but it's also the security of our purpose look in verse 24 he says for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted you see as we started out at the beginning talking about suffering like david suffered there's many times we experience incredible difficulty loss of a loved one health being tormented financial challenges relationships disintegrating we we experience incredible suffering and in those moments we cry out for God's presence to be near us and Jesus was one who when he cried did not receive the answer but he says in verse 24 after this victory He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. This means that our suffering means that our cries are heard by God. Because Jesus was willing to not be heard, he allows us to be heard now. And in verse 26, he says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That our suffering now is redeemable, that it has purpose in it. That it's not just wasted, that it's not just temporary trials that have no point to them. But in fact, in our suffering, God drives us away from that which cannot satisfy to him who satisfies fully. He says in verse 26, those who seek him shall praise him. May your heart live forever. And so our suffering now has purpose, but also our serving. In verse 29, he says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him and bow down, even those who go to the dust. We bow before him. And then in verse 30, he says, posterity shall serve him. That means future generations will know him and serve him. They will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people that are not yet born, that we now have purpose in our life, not just in our suffering to say this is worth it because we will become what we're supposed to be, But we now have purpose in our serving that we're not here just to be tried to see if we'll do a few good works and God will take us to heaven. God has not just put us here to say, let's see if they're nice people. We now have a purpose to tell the uh, those that are coming. This verse in verse thirty one, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Get this last four words, this last line. That he has done it. That's what you get to tell people. That he has done it. Not that he's going to do it. Not just hang on, I promise it's going to be worth it. But that he has done it. Do you remember what Jesus said at the cross? It is finished. He has done it. And now you, who know Jesus Christ, who know to become what it means to be a Christian, now have the opportunity to tell somebody who's not a Christian, it has been done. His righteousness has been delivered, and you can be His. So here's how you connect to this. First, you've got to meditate on why Jesus did this. We've asked why a few times. Why David wrote it, why Jesus quoted it, why it matters for you. But you've got to get, why did Jesus do it? Your answer might be, well, to bring glory to God. And that would be a good answer. That's a fair answer. It's true. But I would remind you that Jesus was bringing glory to God long before He became to earth. Jesus in heaven as the son of God was bringing glory to his father long before he became a human So what was he missing that he didn't have? before And that answer is us So why did he do it? Why would he voluntarily lay down his life and experience the torment that he went through? Why would he do that? He knew what he was doing Why was he doing it for you? You've got to learn how to say that though That he didn't just do it generically for us. You've got to learn how to say it to yourself. That he did this for me. And until you connect that he did this for me, you'll stand on the fringes of the kingdom and not come in. You might pretend to be religious. You might even go through the rituals and the stuff that we do. You might do all those things. But until you can accept that he did this because he wanted to be with me, you'll stand on the fringes of joy and peace, tormented like Psalm 22, verse 1. You don't actually have to cry, why have you forsaken me? You can say, God, bring me near to you, and He will. But you've got to be willing to admit that you deserve judgment before Jesus and that he took judgment for you. And then you've got to turn to Jesus and make your life one with him through repentance and confession and baptism. You've got to become one with him. And if you'll do that, You enjoy the great blessing of being in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus did this and why you should respond. Let's stand and sing. Come forward.